Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton, and over the past few sessions, we've been looking at the contributions to a book called In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. In this book, uh, these highly qualified scientists with doctorates explain why they choose to believe in a recent literal six-day creation as described in, in the Bible. Now, the other day I was listening to a program on ABC Radio where it was discussed that many people have problems with uh, believing in the aspects of the Bible that talk about uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just a few fishes, uh, the literal resurrection of Jesus and, and Jesus raising, for example, Lazarus from the dead or Jesus walking on water. So the, the miracles of the Bible, uh, people have uh, seem to have problems with. Many people say, well, you know, maybe there is a higher power and this sort of thing, but how can I believe in Jesus? How can I really believe in the Bible? And of course, how can I believe that the earth was really created in, in just six days and, and only thousands of years ago? So what we've been considering is, is the scientific evidence and the evidence is actually there for these miracles as well. And that's something I'd just like to discuss uh, briefly today before we go into looking at some more of the uh, scientists' contributions. Many uh, of us don't realise that when we think about ourselves or we think about matter, maybe you're sitting in a car listening to this, you're, you're surrounded by material things, you're sitting on a seat that is hard, you're surrounded by metal, maybe you're at home preparing food in the kitchen, um, and again, you're, you're surrounded with material things, and, and we ourselves are made out of material things. But what many people don't realise is that the actual amount of matter that is weighable, the, the, the solid matter that comprises us is actually only one trillionth of our actual volume. So if you, if you think of yourself um, you know, standing there and you occupy uh, you know, a fraction of a, a cubic metre in, in, in actual space that you observe and you'd measure, if you put a tape measure around your, your waist and a tape measure and measured your height, in actual fact, the amount of matter that makes you up is actually only one trillionth of a percent of that. So that is one millionth of one millionth of a percent, which is one hundredth, of your apparent volume is actually made up by solid matter. So what is the rest? The rest is actually energy fields. And how we perhaps can describe this is that we are actually made up of, of molecules, of chemical molecules. We're made up of, of, of chemicals. And when we look at those chemicals, those chemicals are made up of atoms. And if we look at the structure of the atom, we know that if the nucleus was the size of a golf ball and just a few centimetres in diameter, the first electron, or the outer part of the atom, the electrons, would be about three kilometres, three to four kilometres away. So what's in that, in that empty space? That's a huge amount of empty space. When you think of the size of a golf ball and the size of the outer part of the atom, 
Now, what is occurring in that area are huge force fields, uh, electric force fields, electrostatic force fields that are occurring there, are, and there are also gravitational fields and, and so forth. And it's interesting that uh, the great creationist and physicist James Clark Maxwell who first discovered these fields and and, uh, discovered the mathematics of these fields and in actual fact laid the foundations for later on Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and and gravitational fields um, was the person who put the the mathematical formulas before these. And the mystery of a field, what what are these force fields? Uh, If you step off a diving board at the swimming pool, you're going to be pulled down. Something grabs you and you're pulled down into the water. Now, of course, we generally don't think about that and we enjoy it. We enjoy the sensation of of falling, free-falling through the air and splashing into the water. But we're being pulled down by a field. You can't normally feel that field. We can um, detect it with a pendulum and we, and we can calculate it by swinging a pendulum and, and measuring the, the, the time uh, that it takes for the swing and, and so forth. We can, we can measure the strength of the force of that field acting on the, on the pendulum bob. But what is that field? We can't see it. We, when you push your hand horizontally, there's nothing between the top of the board and the water. You can't feel anything, but there's that subtle pull that pulls us down. So there are all different types of fields that e- exist that physicists measure. Now, when we look, we discussed earlier on how, in actual fact, our thoughts can affect fields our thoughts can affect electric fields in the brain. Our thoughts are non-material. So when we're looking at the, um, the miracles described in the Bible, when we begin to consider how much we don't understand about fields, about um, the, the composition of what we are, um, it, we can see that very easily God, who is outside this, and Jesus... Christ, who was God in person, who came to to earth to to teach us about what God's kingdom was like, become then very, very reasonable examples. Now, of course, are there evidences today that these sort of things uh, can happen? Well, recently I uh, read the book um, The Happiest Refugee by Ardo, and it's interesting in that book, and many of you will have seen him on uh, television as uh, uh, he's a popular comedian, and he he was raised by um, uh, a Christian mum uh, in a Christian in a Christian family, and uh, we can see that uh, many of those principles uh, come through in in his life. It's very interesting that he appeared on the uh, Channel Seven show Deal or No Deal. And my daughter actually watched this particular program. And on this show, um, uh, many of you, I'm sure, have, have watched it, but for those who haven't, uh, they have a celebrity comes on to the, the program and answers quiz-type questions, and there are opportunities to open suitcases, and within the, the suitcases um, there, are, there are prize money uh, amounts. 
and uh, the celebrities are actually acting for people who have nominated to go on to the, uh, the program. So people of the general public write in, they get selected, and rather than those people answer the questions, they have a celebrity represent them and answer the questions on the television. Now, it's interesting, and when uh, I was asked to go on to uh, television the night before, he had a dream. And his dream was that in suitcase 23, there was $200,000. Now, apparently, as part of the program, at the beginning of the program, the person selects from the numbers of suitcases that are there uh, a suitcase to be taken and put aside. And so he chose number 23. Now, as he worked through the uh, went through the scores. He was he was successful and answered the questions successfully. And he got up to the final part of the program. He had won 125000 in prize money. And he was now asked the question, do you want the suitcase or the 125000 And he, he said, without hesitation, I'll take the suitcase. The crowd was saying, take the money, take the money. But he said, I'll take the suitcase. And in his book, he has a Channel 7 photograph of the instant when they opened the suitcase and there was the $200,000. Now, and you can see the, uh, the surprise on the compare's face. Now, it turns out that the family that I was working for was a very, very needy family in Melbourne. The wife had a hole in the heart, had very large medical bills. I think from memory the, the husband was out of work. But they were a very, very needy family. In fact, I was asked, if you had have known that this family was so needy, would you have risked the 125000 And he said, no, I probably would have stopped at, you know, three or 5000 So it's But it's very interesting that he had this really strong dream that that particular amount was in that suitcase. Some uh, time ago, after I edited the book uh, in six days, I put out another book called The God Factor. And we're hopefully in uh, some of the episodes of Faith and Science, I will talk about uh, some of the contributions uh, to this book, which were made by academics around the world, people who lectured at universities, who gave their reasons why they believed in the miracles of the Bible, the literal resurrection of Jesus and so forth. And in one of these stories, a gentleman by the name of uh, Professor Werner Gitt, uh, he was one of the directors of the Federal Institute of Physics um, in Germany. He's about 10 years older than I am. And he writes uh, a particular experience that happened uh, to his family. He grew up in uh, the eastmost part of Germany prior to the war. And in the latter parts of the war, the end of 1944, he, uh, when he was seven uh, years old and and at school, uh, the people in the town where he was had to flee because the Russian army was coming into East Germany. They didn't actually flee far enough, however, and uh, early in um, uh, to, uh, 1945, um, his uh, family was, was captured. His, his mother was taken away and she uh, died uh, while in a, um, in a camp uh, he never uh, heard of his brother again. His father, meanwhile, had uh, been fighting with the German army and was a, a prisoner of war in France. 
and uh, Little Werner and two of his aunties were taken uh, to a Polish area. They were then expelled from the, the Polish area and placed on an island in the North Sea. It's interesting that uh, as the war concluded in 1945, his father had a dream. And in that dream, he envisioned himself talking to his, um, an uncle. And the uncle said to Werner's father, why don't you come and visit us? And Werner's father in his dream said, well, I, I, I don't know where you are. And in the dream, this, this uncle gave him an address. And immediately his, his father woke up and he wrote down the address on a piece of paper. And he wrote to that address from the prisoner of war camp. And through that, that address was real. That was actually where one of uh, Werner's uncles was staying at that time. And through that, Werner was able to be, Werner's father was able to find Werner's location uh, on this particular island, and they were reunited. The only, Werner was the only surviving member of his father's family. Now, it's very interesting that that dream again was very specific. I, the, explaining this information, how does this information come in, in, into the brain? Um, I have a close friend that I go prospecting with. Um, he had a dream one night where, uh, and he had it a couple of nights where he saw his wife driving on this country road in Queensland. And as she went round a corner, the car rolled over and rolled off the road. And then the dream ended. And this, this corner had some characteristic scenery, but what was most impressive was in his dream, he smelt onion grass, very strong smell of onion grass. And it was some time later that his wife went on a, a journey to visit her, her sister who had newly moved into the area of outback Queensland. On this particular time, however, um, my friend Mike, uh, the husband, became concerned that his wife hadn't returned and he, he rang his uh, brother-in-law and said, uh, yeah, has my wife left uh, yet? Uh, she hasn't arrived home. And his brother-in-law explained, well, she left some time ago. She should be home by now. And my friend told him the dream that he had. And he said, I know where that corner is. And they called an ambulance and they went out, and there on this remote Queensland road, they found the car had rolled over a bank and was actually out of sight that the occasional motorist would have travelled along that road. When the ambulance got there, the report was that if they hadn't have got there in the next half hour or so, uh, his wife would have died. So these are, are very interesting uh, scenarios, and I mean, I have experienced the similar things myself, perhaps not quite the, the same, but uh, a little while ago, just a few months uh, ago, I, I had a very, very strong impression to, to ring a friend of mine in Tasmania that I hadn't rung for some while. He was a very good friend, and uh, I, I put it off for a couple of days, and, and then I decided to ring. Uh, the, the feeling was the impression was so strong. And uh, when I rang my friend, his, uh, he, he was so glad to hear my voice. And he said, oh, it's so good to speak to you, John. He said, um, my wife's just been diagnosed with cancer. And um, 
we're having special prayer for her. And and I was talk to, able to talk to him about that. I think I, I meet many people that, that have these experiences. But, of course, there's also the specific experiences of answers to prayer too, which I think make um, Christianity and the faith part of uh, the message very real. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I bought a, a classic car in Melbourne and I, I had to drive it a 1,000 kilometres up the Hume Highway to just north of Sydney, where I live. And uh, I, I took a wrong turn off one of the ring roads and found myself in the uh, CBD of Melbourne in heavy traffic on the long weekend, the June long weekend, on the about 2 o'clock on the Sunday afternoon, not knowing exactly where I was, because uh, I'm uh, not very familiar with uh, that part of Melbourne at all. No map, uh, no GPS that would work, because the, the old car was only six volt anyway. And what what should I do? And fortunately, I stopped next to a, a taxi driver as we were waiting for a red life, and I got him to put the window down, and I, I said to him, how do I get to the Hume Highway? And he said to me, oh, you're going the wrong way, mate. And um, I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, just down here, you should turn right into Elizabeth Parade. And then he gave me a whole series of directions. And it was just so confusing. I couldn't remember that. Some would turn right, some would turn left. Uh, and then trying to remember the street names. Um, and then, of course, the lights changed and he, he drove off. And I noticed that a couple of streets along, that was Victoria Parade. I turned into Victoria Parade and... Um, as I saw the long line of traffic, lots of traffic lights, how would we know what was the next street to turn? I just said out loud, Lord, please help us get out of here. Now, we'd only gone a few more blocks and a, a few more lights when we caught up with the taxi again, a couple of cars behind him in a lane over at a red light. When the gentleman in the taxi jumped out of the taxi, ran around... Uh, to me, a couple of cars behind and in the, the next lane over and handed me a piece of torn-off cardboard with the directions to get from where we were onto the Hume Highway. And uh, I, I certainly praise the Lord for, for that uh, experience. But I guess I, I've, I've seen many answers to prayer like that too where obviously we've been impressed to, to do different things. I've mentioned my book, uh, Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. That book is dedicated to a friend of mine, Dr. Henry Zuhl, who was a zoologist. And some of you may remember that in our last episode, I talked about his chapter in um, the book In Six Days and how he points out that biodiversity and the dependence of the the diversity of species is essential for the survival of species. We depend on one another. You know, plants depend on fungi uh, and flowers depend on insects. And there's this huge complex relationship. The nitrogen cycle, for example, depends on animals, plants, bacteria. And so we, uh, these cycles that we see in nature, this interdependence of many living things, uh, very strongly suggests that the ecosystems of the life on Earth that support life on Earth must have been generated in a very, very short time. And, and that's why the biblical picture of in six days 
is is really so scientific compatible with what we know and with what we're discovering uh, today uh, in our scientific endeavours. Now, uh, my friend Dr. Zul uh, sent me an email to say that he'd been diagnosed with um, with throat cancer, probably uh, in the order of five years ago now. And he'd had this before, and I had this strong sense in me that this was really serious, that he was not going to to last long. Now, he lived near Little Rock in Arkansas, and I do university visits, and there's a a large research uh, centre in Arkansas with the the Department of Agriculture in the United States, the FDA over there. And so I uh, planned a visit uh, to there, uh, to Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and some other university visits uh, while I was going to be in the United States, and I think a conference as well. But just before I was to go and I was booking my fares, my boss came to me and he said, uh, John, I don't want you to uh, to go to the FDA uh, laboratories in Arkansas. I've been having some correspondence with a professor at the University of Colorado in Denver and I'd like you to go and meet him in Denver. Now, the time that had been set up was the very time when I had uh, a weekend spare where I could go and visit my friend Henry. And and I was, I was, I felt just so discouraged. Oh, no, I had these plans. It would have been really great. It would have been worked, able to work out. I would have been able to see Henry. And now I was going to be a long way away in, in Colorado. But just before I was about to leave, a couple of days before I leave, I got an email from Henry saying that um, he and his wife had decided to go to the Eden Valley Health Institute that was near Loveland, which is only about 80 kilometres from Denver. And so in actual fact, I was it all worked out. My boss had changed my itinerary. I had booked my flights uh, weeks before, and now... Henry was actually going to that place, totally unknown to me. And that was a really, really wonderful experience uh, because um, he actually, I visited him on the weekend and he actually died the following weekend. I've seen many, many providential things like this and in, in other episodes I'll, I'll, I'll talk about these. But now we need to get back to the, the science and why creation is so important. Just last night, I was with a, a little uh, study group that was meeting with a, uh, a Bible historian, and he was talking about an important passage in Scripture, which says, it's in Revelation, and I was very keen to go along to this uh, particular talk because uh, often we don't uh, hear many talks about uh, the book of Revelation. But the verses that he was studying were in Revelation chapter 14, and the verses uh, were from uh, 6 and 7, and I'll just read them. It says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting. Here was the gospel, the good news of salvation, 
that is to be preached to the world was to be uh, sent to ever this was uh, the context of this apparently was in the the times of Christianity in the last days just before Jesus return uh, to earth and people were to get ready they were to make sure that they were right with God through accepting his offer of salvation and the thing was they were to worship the God who created heaven and earth and I think this is so important because so much today we're being told, well, no, the earth wasn't created. It, it just evolved. It just occurred by natural processes. Now, in the book In Six Days, there is a scientist there by the name of Ariel Roth. And he is a former editor of the journal Origins. He gained his doctorate in biology from the University of Michigan, which is a, a top-ranking university in the United States. And it's interesting what he points out uh, about the theory of evolution and why there are just major problems with it. And a couple of ones that I've just gleaned from this is that he points out that evolution claims that the all these different uh, changes took place. But he, he points out what would be the point of a flab of skin like a muscle evolving by some mutation if there aren't the nerves to control the muscles? and the whole process there. In actual fact, it would be an impedance for a while. So in actual fact, this, this concept of evolution producing mutation, most of these mutations are going to be negative, have negative effects on the organism. Then they're going to lead to the organism having a disadvantage and not surviving. And he gives many examples of this. The other thing he points out is that we can look through uh, and we observe over there and we find lots of fossils of, of animals. We find over in Mongolia there's lots of fossils of dinosaurs, but there's no plants. On the Coconino sandstones in the southwestern United States, which has many hundreds of good animal trackways, there's no plants. The important dinosaur-bearing Morrison formation in western United States where identifiable plant fossils are non-existent, what did the dinosaurs eat? Where are all the plants that they should have eaten? They're not there with the dinosaur fossils, yet we estimate, for example, a large dinosaur would have eaten about three and a half tonnes of vegetation. What we do is we find the vegetation separately piled together in the coal seams. And so this is a very, very interesting separation that he points out that is powerful evidence for the flood that is also described in the Bible. He goes on to give many, many other examples. Another scientist that contributed to the uh, book in six days was Keith Wanzer. Now, he's professor of physics at uh, the California State University at Fullerton and um, have obtained his uh, PhD in condensed matter physics uh, from the University of California. And he points out, too, that there are so many problems with the Big Bang Theory. His article is very, very interesting, and I'll deal with this in more detail in our next episode. Dr. Wanzers, again, points to the fact that we have overwhelming evidence for the accuracy of the Bible. And again, as I pointed out last week, if you want to read these uh, chapters in detail. They're available free on the internet. Just Google Creation Ministries International. And when you get onto the Creation Ministries International website, just do a search on In Six Days. 
and the text of the book will come up in different chapters under the headings of the names of the contributors. I hope you've enjoyed this session of Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. Bye for now. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Thank you.